Okay, I'm just going to read from a couple of different portions. This is 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. It says, And now let me remind you, since it seems to have escaped you, brethren, of the gospel, the glad tidings of salvation which I proclaim to you, which you welcomed and accepted, and upon which your faith rests, and by which you are saved, if you hold fast and keep firmly what I preached to you, unless you believed at first without effect and for nothing at all. And all for nothing. For I passed on to you, first of all, what I also had received, that Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One, died for our sins in accordance with what Scripture, the Scriptures foretold, and he's bringing on Isaiah 53, obviously in those 12 verses, that he was buried, that he arose on the third day as the Scriptures foretold and were brought out in Psalm, the 16th chapter, verses. 9 and 10. And also that he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, then to all of us, the 12, and this is brought out in John the 20th chapter, when he appeared to them, the 12, including Peter himself. Then later he showed himself to more than 500 brethren at one time, the majority of who are at that time still alive, but some have fallen asleep in death, and that's their physical bodies because their spiritual uh, this who they are in their spirit and soul returns to God in Ecclesiastes 12, 6, and 7. And their body sleeps at rest in the dust. Afterward, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, the special messengers. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one prematurely and born dead, no better than an unperfected fetus among living men. For I am the least worthy of the apostles, who am not fit or deserving to be called an apostle, because I once wronged and pursued and molested the church of God, oppressing it with cruelty and violence. But by the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not found to be in me for nothing, fruitless and without effect. In fact, I worked harder than all of the apostles, though it was not really I, but the grace, the unmerited favor and blessing of God, which was with me. So whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed, what you adhered to, trusted in, and relied on. But now if Christ the Messiah is preached as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, in Jesus' time and in Paul's time, that was the Sadducees. They didn't believe in a resurrection. And of course, Jesus was surrounded by the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, and the Essenes, all of which hated each other. And when Christ came, they all joined together in each of their hatred toward Christ. They became one in their hatred towards Christ. But now, if Christ the Messiah is preached as raised from the dead, how is it that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is, is in vain. It amounts to nothing. And your faith is devoid, completely empty of truth and fruitless, without effect, empty, imagina imaginary, and unfounded. We are even discovered to be misrepresenting God, speaking lies. For if, because if we testified of him that he raised, from, raised Christ from the dead, when he did not raise him, then, of course, the dead are not raised and there's no truth. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, your absolute dependence, is mere delusion, fruitile, fruitless, and you are still in your sins under the control and penalty of sin. And further, those who have died in Notice it says, this is the Amplified, in spiritual fellowship and union with Christ, have perished, they're lost. If we, who are abiding in Christ, right now living on this earth, have hope only in this life, and that is all, then we are, of all, most miserable and to be pitied in our misery. But the fact is that Christ the Messiah has been raised from the dead and he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in death. And that's what it's considered believers that are in Christ. And now I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians. Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter. And I'm going to read, and starting in the first verse. Verse 1, it says, For of 2 Corinthians 5, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, our physical body, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, we groan. The whole creation does. We see that in Romans, the 8th chapter, and verses 20 down through to, to 24 and 25. But right now, indeed in this house, this particular vessel, this physical body, this fragile clay jar in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. And this is putting on Christ. Obviously, this is what it's talking about. For indeed, while we are in this tent, this physical body, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal or corruptible will be swallowed up by life or incorruptibility. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose of God who gave us, gave to us the Spirit as a pledge, as a down payment, as a fact of reality. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in this body, we are absent from the Lord physically, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We don't go by 
that sight. We don't go by appearances or fleshly knowledge. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that we walk by faith and we have courage. We are of good courage, I say, and, and prefer rather to be absent from the body. This was Paul was explaining in Philippians 1, 21 to 24. We prefer rather to be absent from the body. How many times have we preferred that? Rather not to continue here, not to continue to groan, not to continue to suffer, and not to continue to look at others. It's almost unbearable. At times it seems that our suffering and our pain and our groaning, we know that we're going to heaven, but it's unbearable. Then we look at others in, in a lost condition, they're ruined and devastated condition. And we groan because of that. It's, it's almost unbearable. So we prefer rather to be absent from the body than to be at home with the Lord. And we truly want that forever and for others for our family and for friends and people we know, everyone that we come in contact with, if we function in the present reality that Christ is in us as that resurrection life. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the manifestation seat. If it says like judgment in any translation, you can be, you can feel free to cross it out and put the manifestation seat, there is no judgment for those that are in Christ in Romans 8, verse 1. Something that unless he's our living reality and our present reality, we will lose sight of instantly and think that we're being judged for something we should have done or we didn't do or, and, uh, or something that we did do and shouldn't have done. We all appear at the manifestation seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and this is now, this isn't the Bema seat, the manifestation seat, this is the great white throne that this is talking about in Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of, of Christ in us, obviously, to be thankful, really, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, we're Brothers consider us to be crazy. They thought Paul was crazy. And we'll, we'll see it in Acts the 17th chapter. If we are beside ourselves, as far as you look, it's really for God. And if we are of sound, sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ. And here's, here's where we have to be at all times especially when he's dealing with us based upon who, who Christ is in us. 
And then if he has us around others and we see their devastation and their utter ruin. If he's not in control of us, if he's not mastering us, we, it becomes unbearable. We cannot bear it any more than we can bear our own groanings. And, and it's interesting the way that some people in their lost and ruined condition manifest their groanings. groanings. They can do it with anger. They can do it with swearing and language. And, and uh, really, the result of their groaning, because they can't do anything about the depth of their own ruin, their own depravity. But for us, who have the resurrection life of Christ in us, for the love of Christ constrains, it, it controls us. Because none of us are in control of ourselves. For the love of Christ controls us. Now here's what happens. The whole world system, the whole satanic world system, we see this again in Genesis, the fourth chapter, verses 16 to 25. We see the whole world system, the whole world system that Jesus said that Satan still at this, at this time allowed by God as the prince of it in John 12, 31, and in John 14, 30. And that's why he has to remind Christians constantly, constantly in 1 John 2, 15, love not the world. In that particular context, he's speaking to Christians. Love not the world. Can I take who God is and call it loving the world? No, it's just, just lust. So he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What are the things that are in the world? Where do they all come from? Where do they all come from? They came from the dust. Every material thing that we look to and sometimes we take to make ourselves appear a certain way, literally all of that will go into the dust, just like our physical bodies. We're created by that dust in, in Genesis 2 and verse 7. We return to it in, in Genesis 3 and verse 19. Now for us, we go to be with the Lord. That silver bowl, that string is, is cut. Again, this is Psalm 90, verse 10. We are cut off and we soon fly away. We go back to the Lord again. This is Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. But we have that eternal life in us. We have that eternal life. That life is Christ in 1 John 5 and verse 11. But for a moment, that's why he says, and that's why the preaching of the cross is something constantly that we all need in Galatians 6 and verse 14, it says, God forbid that I should glory. That's what he's talking about. God forbid that I should glory. Except in the cross of Jesus Christ. Of whom the whole world is crucified unto me. And I unto the world. You know, the whole world system is formed by Satan. This whole world system is formed by Satan based upon his lie. You see this in Genesis 3, 1 to 6. He's the father of all lies in John 8, verse 44. 
the whole world system, those that are unsaved, they, they, are, they live under his lie. And in his lie, he's the, listen, he's the father of all lies. I'll tell you what else he is. He is the father of all suspicion. And he is the father of all irritation. There is no suspicion in who God is, love. Do you ever sense the enemy coming in? When we give him time. He wants us to be, and this is what the enemy desires for us, and this is why we have to be so careful. He's the father of all suspicion, and he's the father of all irritation. He has the whole world system deceived under his lies. This is Revelation 12, 9. He has the whole world system deceived under his lie, and they live in constant suspicion and irritation. You can go from one good thing, that doesn't last, there's suspicion and there's irritation until that can be filled again. It's called lust. It's insatiable. It is totally insatiable. And the Christian, the Christian, who loses the fact of the resurrection life that Christ is in them, in all of us. You lose the fact experientially, instantly, the enemy in your experience, because remember, sin, our sins are dealt with. This is First John 2, 1 and 2. He's dealt with our sins. Those that are in Christ. But he'll go after the experience of the believer. And when he doesn't control, it's Christ. Because no man is master of himself. Again, we have to have a single eye. This is Matthew 6 and verse 22. We have to look away from all that distracts. All. Look unto Jesus. And Hebrews 12 too. We have to look away. Because if, and if we don't, then Satan wants us and our experience to be the object of his lies, his suspicion, and his irritation. There's no suspicion in who God is love. And honestly, there is no irritation in God's grace. Christ was never irritated. The fullness of the grace and truth in John 1 and verse 14 filled up with all of who God is in Colossians 2, 9. There was never any irritation in him. Obviously, he never had a sin nature, but he had a human nature. But he's our life. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, this is the conclusion. This is the divine, the supernatural conclusion for the one ruined by Satan. This is the conclusion. That the one for whom Christ Jesus died for and rose again is for them. Never suspicious about us. And never irritated one single time. Never. Never. Not one time. And this is the conclusion. The conclusion is as long as he controls me experientially, based upon the position that I have in Christ, I will not be suspicious of anyone. The enemy wants us to, to begin with his lie. You will see this in Genesis 3, 1 to 6 to make us, when we give him a place, to be suspicious of God. When he makes us suspicious of God, sooner or later there's going to be irritation. In other words, something I should have done and I didn't. 
of something I did and shouldn't have done. The moment that happens experientially, we become experientially the object of his lie, his suspicion, and his irritation. Is that who we are in Christ? For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, this supernatural divine conclusion that Christ is. And here it is. That one died for all. This is propitiation. One did die for all. So that they who live, does it say all live here? It doesn't say that. It says that they who live, they who have Christ as their life, should no longer live for themselves. Because if you do, it's always a form of a lie, suspicion, and irritation. And we can't handle ourselves. We cannot control ourselves. We get devastated when we look away from Christ. And when we look at others in their ruin and utter devastation, we cannot take it. We get overwhelmed. And when we look at others, apart from how Christ sees them, then we get suspicious, fearful, irritated, lose our peace. That's the conclusion. The conclusion is that, is that potentially he's not willing that any should perish. Do you see them? You see your loved ones in devastation and ruin? You can't do anything about it if you're helpless. You get, you get literally overwhelmed. You know, all you want to do is just, if, it, if you're not sent there with the control of Christ in you, you just want to leave. You can't handle it. You can't handle, and I can't handle my own groanings, my own experiential devastation, never mind this. I have to cast all I care on him in First Peter 5, 7 and Psalm 55 and verse 22. So again, for the love of Christ can, controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all. That's how we see them. We either see them that way or we get overwhelmed by the depth of their desolation and ruin. Therefore, he died for all. Why? Because all were dead. All lived separated from him. Oh, how the unsaved and the lie lived separated from God. And oh, how the Christian who doesn't have the full mind of Christ, the full word of God, as God the Holy Spirit only can teach them in 1 John 2.20 and 1 John 2.27 and in John 16.13 and 14. Oh, how they live in such experiential devastation and ruin, such suspicion and such irritation. So Jesus did die for all. So that they who live, that's us in Christ, should no longer live for themselves, but separated from that for him. For him here is this. For him, when we see for him, as 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 15, is 1 John 4, 10. Here in his love, not that we loved him, 
but that he loved us. Now we love in 1 John 4, 19, because he first loved us. We return, return in obedience, in absolute dependence to our unbelievable freedom. But for him who died and rose again on our behalf, and he did it potentially for others. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one. Because if we do, we get overwhelmed. If I recognize and reckon myself after my sin, after what's been dealt with, it's unbearable. You know, he bore it all. He bore the whole sin question. That's John 1.29. He bore all the misery, the hatred, the shame. Personally, he dealt with it. Potentially for all, especially for those that have Christ as their life. That's why we don't go back. No. From now on, we recognize no one. Because if I don't reckon it myself, we no longer recognize anyone according to the flesh, the old. Even though we have known Christ according to his humanity. In the most unique way, obviously. He's more than just the baby in the manger. Far more than that. He was the son of God and the son of man. High and lifted up. You see that? The picture that Isaiah had in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3. That was that was just a small manifestation, not a full manifestation, because no created being in John 1.18, no created being, no angel, no man has ever seen God in all his fullness. But he saw Christ in his pre-incarnate state. You know, he was so, he was devastated. Isaiah was, as a great, as a, as a prophet, one who God gave his special word to, to pronounce to Israel. And we glean from those scriptures too, by the way. But when King Isaiah died, can you imagine having a, a godly president for 52 years? And God gave him Isaiah all the prophecy in Isaiah 7:14 about Christ coming 700 years before he even came. But he was devastated because he looked to. Uh, as, you know, King Isaiah, and even though he was a godly king and a patriot for Israel, when he died, he thought it was over for him. He got devastated because even what he thought could be the potential ruin and, and devastation that people would face, and that's when God opened up the heavens. That's what he has to do with us. That's what he's done with me. So that our own uh, devastation and ruin, which is dealt with, and even others potentially has been too, by the way, potentially for them, if they just but receive him in John 1, 12. Yet now we know him. We don't know Christ in this way any longer. Therefore, from now on, if anyone is in Christ, he is a brand new creature because it's a brand new creation. It is a brand new creation. A brand new creation. 
And out of a brand new creation comes a new creature. The old things passed away. See them in their potential. Continue to see yourself and who you are in Christ and you won't get devastated and overwhelmed. And see them in their potential. Because otherwise, in both cases, personally, you won't be able to handle what the enemy still tries to tell you is your de devastation and your sins, of which no, we are no longer. It's no longer I. In Romans 7, 17 and Romans 7, 20. Uh, I am crucified with Christ in Galatians 2, 20. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ is living in me to control me and, and to live in his controlling love for them and his view of them, even in the midst of their devastation and ruin. He handled it all. What you and I can't handle, he handled, and he's in control of. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new cre creation. The old things passed away. Behold, see it? New things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And you know what? He's given us this ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? God never doesn't have anything against us any longer. Peace has been brought about through Christ who is that peace. Ephesians 2 and verse 14. One on the cross in Colossians 1 and verse 20. The blood of his cross, his life poured out, is our peace. Our constant, continual peace when he controls us. And only experientially when he controls us. He's given us this ministry of reconciliation. What? Namely this. What? That God was in Christ and still is in Christ in us. <laughs> Reconciling whosoever, the whole world of humanity, to himself potentially, not counting their trespasses against him, as he has committed to us the word. Who is the word of his reconciliation? It's Christ. Therefore, Therefore, we don't live to ourselves. Follow the context. No, we're his ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you, we beseech you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God because he made him who never knew one single sin to be the sin sacrifice on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We have this resurrection life. The enemy hates it. The enemy hates it. If we, of all men, he wants to make us most miserable. He will. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we only have hope, if Christ is our only hope in this world, for now, if he claimed to be everything, who he is, if only in this life and not for all eternity, we would be the most pitiable and miserable people on the face of the earth. And he wants to, the enemy wants to make us miserable. 
and to become the objects of his believers, to become the objects of his lies, his suspicion, and his irritation, his utter anger, instead of being his ambassadors. Why we, we need to have that yoke in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. You see everything that came against Christ. They accused him of everything. Read Matthew the 11th chapter, up to 19 and down into verse 27 and then to 28 and 29. Come unto him. Come unto him. Because if you don't, you will get dev I, you and I will get devastated. The enemy wants to devastate us at times when he tries to convince us that you, we're still ruined in some measure. We're still devastated. We're still our sin. We're still our failure. We're still our bad days. He wants to overwhelm us with his lies, his lies. But we see the proof of the resurrection. The proof of the res resurrection in Acts 17 and verse 31, the proof of it is this, that there is coming a judgment. The wrath of God will be poured out on all those that don't have Christ. But the proof that our sins are dealt with and that when all things are passed away, God has dealt with every lie, Christ through Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every lie, every suspicion, and every irritation. He's dealt with it all. Every single one of them. The ruin that we see, the devastation that we see, Christ is the only answer for that. And unless he controls us experientially, we will not be able to bear what the enemy casts towards us about his lies, his suspicion, his irritation, his utter anger. And we won't even be able to handle those. But we are his ambassadors. He's, he is the resurrection life in us. The resurrection life in us, that is Christianity, that's our foundational truth. Christ did rise from the dead. John 3.26, there's no wrath for us. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. He has delivered us out of death and brought us into that Christ that life is in John 5 and verse 24. He's dealt with our utter ruin and devastation and potentially for them, he has. Because if we look at him without Christ controlling us in his thoughts of the potential of his love for them, and we see that and, and see them in that devastation, we will get so overwhelmed and so devastated. And we'll lose the control, the depth of the intimacy of his love for us. We're his ambassadors and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. It means we never have to buy a lie Proverbs 23, 23, buy the truth, sell it not. Isaiah 55 and verse 2, don't spend money on something that will never satisfy. And Father, we thank you for your love this morning, for the depth of your, your grace, your mercy, your unconditional love. No matter what's going on, you're above it. No matter what is going on, 
even in the midst of our groaning and the whole creation groans. We see it. <laughs> whole creation groans. In some form you see it. In every man, woman, and child. In every animal, every bird, in some measure. The whole creation is groaning, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And we, can, we can do that now. We can manifest the reality of who we are to them. And thank you for this truth, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.